Hello everybody, this is Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. I'm a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran. You are listening to my podcast Ukraine War Decoded. With experts from different areas, we talk about Ukraine and how this young European country resists the brutal military invasion from Russia in 2022. My guest today is Eugene Bondarenko, a lecturer from University of Michigan, United States. Originally, Eugene is from the city of Kyiv, a capital of Ukraine, so he perfectly knows this country. He moved to Michigan and currently he teaches the Ukrainian language to the American college kids. Welcome to my podcast, Eugene. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be here and thank you for inviting me. Let's start our talk from the general question. What should American audience and the audience in other Western countries know and understand about modern Ukraine? Well, so I think my answer here would be twofold. Uh, the first, and this is kind of a global understanding, is that Ukraine uh, is basically the country that when we talk about these sort of ideals of democratic governance and transition from, uh, you know, from authoritarianism, in Ukraine's case, this would be under the Soviet rule, right, to a democracy with civil society. Ukraine is pretty much the fairy tale of what we want countries to do in this regard. Ukraine came out of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991, when it became independent, you know, it was largely governed by the same people that governed it during Soviet times. So up until the Orange Revolution in 2004, I would argue that democratic institutions were rather weak in Ukraine. Not as weak as in some of the other post-Soviet states, but over the last 30 years, you know, Ukraine has went along a path of transitioning to democratic governance that takes some countries centuries, and Ukraine has managed to do it in just 30 years. So I, I think that this is a culture and a country and a people whose values we ought to support because they are quite similar to our own. And also, I would say to the backdrop of that, that there is a broader security concern. Ukraine is essentially acting as a shield for Europe and for really the collective West. It is the country that is fighting the hard fight. And I understand that Americans, you know, as people everywhere around the world are uh, growing very fatigued, particularly with gasoline and food prices, right, which I, I do understand this is, you know, every, it's, it's hit everyone. It's important to remember that the fight in Ukraine isn't just about Ukraine. It's about the broader context of elected government, democracy, and how whether societies where the average person has some kind of voting power, some kind of governing power can survive in a world where there are aggressive authoritarian regimes such as Putin's Russia that seek to do away with that and uh, return to a might makes right world. My next question is personal. How did this war start for you five months ago? And what did your American friends feel when Russia started the war? You know, I was at home, so I was uh, actually unfortunate enough to see this uh, announcement on TV by uh, the Russian president that, you know, he's declaring a special operation and then seeing blasts go off on live television in my uh, home city of Kyiv. Obviously, that was devastating. I was one of the folks who was fairly certain from mid-December that some kind of military conflict would happen. I can't say that I thought it would be a full-scale invasion, but I was expecting something because I do have a long 
interest in open source intelligence and things like this. And to me, the deployment of field hospitals in Belarus with blood banks and, you know, completely ready to go, this indicated to me that there would be war. I think a lot of my American friends, and I understand because, you know, they're they're not as connected to the news cycle, they were rather shocked that this was in fact the case. I think that there isn't anything particularly shocking about it if we look at the way that Ukraine and Ukrainians have been portrayed in Russian media for the last 18, 20 years. Uh, it's been a slow, steady drumbeat of demonization and uh, dehumanization in some way, in the sense that there is no legitimate way to be Ukrainian in the Kremlin's and therefore, you know, Russian society's view of the world. And uh, to me, it seemed obvious that there would be an attempt at some point. Historically, Ukrainian language was always the center of the cultural battle between Kyiv and Moscow, and many Russian rulers, not only Vladimir Putin, tried to erase it and replace with Russian. The process of Russification during the Soviet times caused the situation when people in the Ukrainian cities became predominantly Russian-speaking. But since Ukraine gained independence, and especially in 2014, when Russia attacked, many Ukrainians, especially young generation, switched to speaking Ukrainian. It was a symbolic demonstration of their resistance. As a Ukrainian, so because I teach Ukrainian language, I am uh, very in tune to what happens with it. And I was delighted because like many Ukrainians my generation, I was born in 1988 in Kyiv. I grew up hearing and speaking predominantly Russian, although I went to a Ukrainian school. But at 18, I made the choice to consciously, you know, speak only Ukrainian wherever it was possible. And I saw a lot of people in 2014 making that choice. And I do fundamentally very strongly believe it has to be a personal individual choice, you know, to switch languages one must want to. This renaissance to me was primarily marked by two things. The first is that in many places where Russian had been the lingua franca, you would now, especially from young people, expect to hear Ukrainian first. There was also revived interest, or I guess a newly born interest perhaps, in studying Ukrainian abroad. And this was, you know, facilitated by the publication of, you know, probably more new Ukrainian textbooks since 2014 than there had been prior to that since 1991. This has also been reflected, you know, in ways like when you log on to websites of major international companies, or whether if you, you know, even video games sometimes, now a Ukrainian language option fairly commonly. And I remember the first time I saw one in like 2011, 2012 on something that wasn't affiliated directly with Ukraine. And that to me said, okay, like this has become a phenomenon large enough where people are going to start accommodating, you know, large corporations are going to start accommodating it of their own volition. Eugen, you teach American students the Ukrainian language. Why do Americans want to study this particular language? There's basically two main groups. The first and the larger group are usually either students in their third or fourth year of study or in graduate school that have already decided that they're quite interested in Ukraine, uh, usually from a political or development kind of point of view. Although, you know, of course, there is the occasional linguist, historian and kind of more traditional scholar. And most of these folks want to work for the State Department, somewhere in the U.S. government. Some want to go work in Ukraine. It really greatly varies. The other major group are people who are themselves by descent Ukrainian, and they want to reconnect with that culture and heritage. 
I do have to say that you might think that the second group are kind of a always obvious group to have, but actually their interest in preserving Ukrainian and preserving their language and maybe revitalizing it was markedly increased after 2014. There are still has to be something that, you know, you as a third or fourth generation immigrant want to connect to. And I think Ukraine's revolution in 2014 was a starting point for the development of current interest in studying Ukrainian. Since 2014, public in Ukraine began demanding to replace many Russian and Soviet geographical names with the original names. The government supported it, so a lot of cities, towns and villages returned their initial names. Often they are really beautiful. For example, the city of Komsomolsk is now called again Gorishny Plavny, which means the upper flood of water. With time, this renaming initiative transformed into another initiative to encourage the English language speakers to change their transliteration of the cities in Ukraine from Russian into Ukrainian. For example, to stop writing and saying the name of the capital city in a Russian manner, Kiev. This city is called Kyiv in Ukrainian, with letters Y and I. Thankfully, many Western countries, corporations, transportation authorities responded positively and switched to the original transliteration. Eugen, what is your opinion about this process? You know, the way I always describe this process to my students uh, is that Ukraine was essentially colonized by the Russian Empire and later the Soviet Union for, um, you know, about three centuries. If you were to in the United States in an American context, if you were talking to about a group that was colonized, right, we know that scholars, we want to ask that group what they want to be called, what they want their places to be named, what they want things to be referenced as. And as long as you explain why that name changes, you know, like obvious examples would be the cities of Chernihiv and Kharkiv, right, which are known to many in the West as Chernigov and Kharkov, right, because that is the Russian transliteration. I find that as soon as I explain this to my students, they're very careful to only use Chernihiv and Kharkiv. It's very easy. You know, Kyiv being the exception and that vowel can be difficult to render for English speakers. So... There's a little bit of a kind of, we'd call it a production issue. But as far as things that don't involve, you know, a phonetic difficulty, people are very receptive. The Russian war triggered not only changes in transliteration. Recently, I read the news from Poland that their Polish language council recommended to Polish-speaking people to start saying in Ukraine instead of on Ukraine. I think this is also a shift in global understanding of what Ukraine is about. Yeah, and you know, like, so for example, to give an English example of that because in english we don't say in or on but there there is the old way of saying the ukraine right which is uh, fundamentally incorrect and that's kind of what, what i explained to my students you know the way we use the in front of geographical names if the country starts with the country's name starts with an adjective then yeah we use the so it's the united states the united kingdom or we use the to denote a territory so the yukon the northwest territories right Saying the Ukraine uh, is a connotation that it is a territory of something else. And so this has kind of been the English equivalent of that. And as far as I as far as I know, all modern American, at least editorial standards, do explicitly state that you cannot say the Ukraine. You must say simply Ukraine. I would like to know your opinion about the most recent way of the cultural resistance. 
Many news websites in Ukraine stopped writing from the capital letter words like Russia and names of Putin, Lavrov and other Russian governmental officials. According to the grammar, this is incorrect, and those words should start with capital letters. Where do you stand here? Well, first of all, I fully support this, and I'll tell you why. It's grammatically incorrect in the sense that we have a artificially designed set of rules that says that the first letter in a word must be capitalized. All native speakers and pretty much everyone who's written in a Indo-European language or a language that uses an alphabet will, will know that, yeah, the first letter of a sentence and proper nouns should be capitalized. However, at the same time, it's not breaking any fundamental rules of the language, right? So you can make grammatical mistakes that confuse a native speaker. The native speaker doesn't understand what you're saying. That would be a problem. But I have absolutely no qualms about uh, words like Russia, and pardon my language, Putin or Lavrov, being written with a lowercase letter. I think that that's actually a very appropriate vehicle of resistance. It's much better than coming up with, you know, nasty monikers for them or something like that. I, I think it, it's a very measured way to show animosity towards an enemy that is actively committing genocide. Let's switch gears to the musical forms of the Ukrainian resistance against Russia. It's not a secret that we Ukrainians love to sing and we have our own vast treasure of old and modern songs in different styles. When the war started in February, the popular among the Ukrainian youth music band Boombox issued a new version of the old patriotic song Chervona Kalina. This is the song about the tree of Red Wyburnum why it looks sad and how to make this tree happy again. In the video clip, a singer, Andrei Klevnyuk, wore a military uniform with a gear and a rifle, and he stood up on a central square in Kyiv in front of the famous St. Sophia Cathedral. In fact, this singer enlisted himself into the Ukrainian army to defend the homeland. So this new version of an old patriotic song became viral. It became popular even outside Ukraine, to the point that the famous rock band Pink Floyd made their own version and played this at their concert back in April. Eugen, what can you say about the importance of the musical ways of resistance? Oh, so that's a great question. We oftentimes assume when we think about patriotic music, especially for times of war, right, we think of kind of marches from the World War II era and just before. And the fact is, is that war music, like any other kind of media, is supposed to inspire a particular set of feelings, primarily ones of pride, ones of, you know, rightful vengeance, and ones that convey that, you know, you will win. For this message to be effective, the music actually has to be kind of music that people listen to. Before World War II and during it, marches may have, you know, kind of already been somewhat popular. I mean, it would certainly be the case in the Soviet Union and for a totally different set of reasons in the United States. Nowadays, if you look at a lot of Ukrainian music that is coming out, especially that's about the war, it is you know, electronic dance music a lot of the time. It is rap. It's things that are going to be catchy to the modern audience. And I think that the Ukrainian music scene, rather, has come together in a way to really make very effective songs. Um, I would list some of my favorites, but I don't know whether the, their titles would be appropriate <laughs> in this podcast, um, because a lot of them are, you know, not particularly civil or devoid of profanity. But at the same time, I think this is very effective because 
music as a vehicle of resistance has to be such that the average person wants to listen to it. They, they want to listen to it over and over again. And it should be fairly accessible. And I think that currently Ukrainian music scene has responded with a lot of effort and with a lot of unity towards the Russian invasion. As a Ukrainian living in America, what do you think about how Americans anticipate the Ukrainian music? I mean, melodies can be great, but the lyrics may shock someone and be even rejected in the politically correct West. Obviously, things have to be presented in context. The songs that I would share just randomly on my profile on Facebook or something would be very different from the songs that I would maybe present in class. So in in class, I can present whatever I would like because I have the luxury of being able to translate the text, annotate it myself, and do all of these things. So in an academic environment, if you're approaching something that is, say, would be politically incorrect, as long as you couch it and as long as you explain why you're presenting it and what significance it has it's actually fine i've never had a problem i've definitely taught some rather explicit things can you tell me a few examples of such war songs yes there is a song for example called vova yibashi bled that i think is was number two or number one on the charts the context that i presented it in was the fact that uh, ukrainians historically do not like their governments or their presidents it's very similar to america actually i would argue but overall people are fairly distrustful of their government and of their leaders and i thought that it was very significant that zelensky received the kind of support that he did from all sectors of society You know, I have to be honest with you, I say this is somebody who was not a huge fan of Zelensky before the war. You know, this this is very interesting. For the first time since independence, you know, the president actually has enormous support, not three weeks after election, right? <laughs> so the other thing that's important to teach people, you know, and to, to explain people about this music, like, yes, it can seem angry. There can be things in there like, wow, did you just say this? But you have to understand this is being made by people whose cities are being shelled, whose relatives are being killed and who are forced to fight a war just to defend their right to exist. They're going to be angry. They're going to say things that you might not like, but that's a fact of life. And just like war is a fact of life. I'm sure, Eugene, that you presented to your students that famous phrase from Snake Island when the Ukrainian soldier explicitly sent the Russian ship Moskva in certain direction. Of course, of course, of course. But see, that one is very easy. I've never had a problem with, you know, with, with something like that, because that's a sentiment that I think a lot of people understand. You know, they're like, wow, what a what a what a terrific statement of resistance, right? My next question is about the interest to Ukraine in the West. Now it is high for obvious reasons, but will this interest continue in the future? Yes, I think that it will. Obviously, you know, we will probably see a reduction in interest after the war is concluded, because an existential crisis is going to draw more attention than rebuilding after the war. It's an unfortunate reality because both are very important. But, you know, I think that that's true. But I don't see the world forgetting anytime soon for several reasons. First and foremost, I myself think that it's very good for people to look for their ideals and principles. And I try to do that. But I also think that the biggest mover of things in the world is money, especially on such a large scale. And with Ukraine having such a massive rebuilding project, 
simply from an investment point of view, there's going to be a lot of attention. And I think wherever there's that, there follows a scholarly attention and attention from the government and therefore, you know, government jobs and things like that. So I, I think that this war, I am fairly certain that this is going to end Ukraine's way. When the war ends, I think that Ukraine will be more integrated with the EU, certainly, and with its immediate Western neighbors than it has ever been. And I don't at all see in terms of to, to really answer your question, I think the amount of investment we're seeing now help the Ukrainians fight back. I really don't see that just disappearing into nothing when the war is over. While finalizing our talk, I would like to ask you an unusual question. Through the smoke of this brutal Russian war and genocide, maybe we can find some positivity. I mean, this assault consolidated the Ukrainian nation as never before, and I think this is good. Do you also see positivity here? You know, I, I really think that uh, the unity that we now see in Ukraine, I think that it is part of Ukrainian culture, and I think this is very healthy for a political discourse. There won't be this kind of monolithic unity for long. I mean, after the war, there will be different political parties, and that's healthy. However, I think there's going to be enough of a commonality because of the invasion. So before, there were quite a slice of the population that really, if asked honestly, not in public, and would be asking, hey, what do you think would be best? And they would say, well, you know, life was pretty good when Russia was in charge. Like, well, I do think that that is gone. So I think at this point, we will have a baseline consensus in Ukraine that like, hey, we're Ukrainians, we want to be with the EU. This is where we are most appropriate culturally and economically. I think these things together, they're a very positive outcome. So we, we will see, I think, a healthier and more unified political scene. On this note, I'm wrapping up this episode of my podcast, The Ukraine War Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. And my guest today was Eugene Bondarenko, a lecturer in the Ukrainian language at the University of Michigan, the United States. Eugene, thank you for such a wonderful discussion. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And keep up the important work. Please follow me on Twitter. My handle there is Mr. Kovalenko, Mr. Kovalenko, one word. Also, please donate to my PayPal. You can find the link in the description so I could continue recording future episodes and developing my podcast into a collection of thoughtful discussions about Ukraine and everything Ukrainian. Goodbye and so long.